So it's very important that you're happy tonight because I'm talking about joy. <laughs> now I actually want to prefix the talk um, by saying that I will be talking about joy as a factor of awakening. And that's uh, by no means meaning that you should be having lots of joy, will be having lots of joy. <laughs> as demonstrated by my colleague on my right. <laughs> But the joy is in how we relate to the conditions, and clearly we have a radiant display of that quality here. (laughs) So as I was sitting, I was thinking about uh, joy, funnily enough, and um, my teachers. And, um, you know, Buddhism often gets a bad rap for being uh, overly focused on dukkha, on suffering. And yet when I think about my teachers and my friends and peers and uh, people in this community, uh, my experience of them is they're very happy. You might have heard us laughing a lot in the yurt and at lunch or in dinner, you know, or breakfast <laughs> or any time actually. <laughs> and um, there's just a lot of joy that gets liberated as we do this practice. In some ways it's sort of mysterious and sometimes counterintuitive, but that seems to be one of the fruits and the blessings. And so I want to speak to that um, as, you know, the Buddha, as he does in many of his lists, repeats this teaching. You know, it's in the seven factors of awakening. It's one of the the rupa jhanas, the form jhanas. Um, It appears in many different aspects of his teaching. And so clearly he saw this was a, an essential ingredient for our practice, for our lives, for awakening, which is kind of good news, really. You know, it could have been sadness as a fact of awakening, but no, it's joy. So, <laughs> hey, we got a bonus. <laughs> so the Buddha was known as the happy one. In his, in his time, in his peers, he was known as the happy one. He knew the peace uh, unchanged by conditions. All the different conditions that he went through in his life he was known as the happy one, as the peaceful one. So when you see these Buddhas that are depicting uh, him in d- different forms, the smile is the smile of equanimity. It's not, a, the, it's not the grimness of equanimity or the downness of equanimity, it's the joy of equanimity. And he tried many practices before he discovered his own path and awakening. He, just, he, he tried asceticism. Gladly we don't have to do that because he said it wasn't the right path. It was an imbalance. It was not the middle way. He tried sensual indulgence as a prince. Didn't leave him, didn't leave him uh, fully satisfied. Still felt the, the existential pang of birth, old age, sickness and death and not free from that. And so he discovered the middle way through his practice, through mindfulness, through inquiry, through his own awakening. And one of the ways I want to talk about joy this evening is uh, uh, joy as a wisdom factor. And I'll explain what that is as, as the talk goes on. Um, but it's the joy that arises out of wisdom, joy that arises out of knowing, out of liberation, out of clear understanding, which is what we're doing here slowly and patiently, day after day. And it's also the wisdom, the joy that arises out of the wisdom. Um, you know, the, the Buddha originally taught because he saw how we misperceive the source of happiness. 
Yeah. He saw how people were you know, grasping after things, rejecting things, and making themselves miserable. And so he laid out this beautiful path where we don't have to repeat those same mistakes, at least not as often. This is from Hafez. It's um, called Stop Being So Religious. What do sad people have in common? It seems like they've all built, built a shrine to the past and often go there and do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being religious. Stop being so religious like that. So this is the one, of the, you know, one of the many detours we take in our search for happiness. Well, maybe I can you know, fix my past. Maybe I can manage my future. Good luck. So, um, another aspect in our relationship to joy and happiness is sometimes we feel a little shy or embarrassed or guilty even for um, dwelling, residing in joy and happiness and well-being. You know, we all so clearly know the extent and the depth of suffering, of pain and horror in this world. And sometimes the, there's a kind of a apprehension in fully inviting and allowing that. This is from the Buddha in one response to that in, in a way. He said, live in joy in peace even among the troubled. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. Know the sweet joy of the way. I love that phrase. It's a beautiful way of holding this practice. As we sit and we walk and do our practice, do we know the sweet joy of the way? This is from Jack Gilbert. A brief for the defense. It's really a brief for the defense for joy. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else. With flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what is asked. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. It's a very powerful way of putting that. So to honor, you know, our practice is honoring everything. The joys, the sorrows, the beauty, the sadness, the loss. I know when I started... um, when I came across Buddhism, and I, as I mentioned in the faith talk the other night, you know, I felt an incredible joy about the sense of coming home, about having found some practice or some 
way of understanding the chaos and the mess of life. You know, and it, there, was a, there was a sweetness in it. I remember moving into the retreat center I moved into when I was about 20, and my meditations were, had a lot of uh, rapture, a lot of, a lot of bliss, a lot of delight, and, I, and it felt like it had, I hadn't done anything for it, but it felt like there was just the, the, the joy of, 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 find, of find, finding home, of, of being in alignment in some way. So joy is an essential ingredient in this path. If you think about the word enlightenment, we're enlightening ourselves, we're lightening our load, we're unburdening ourselves. As Adi Ashanti talks about, we, we carry on this big, heavy backpack of stuff. And through our practice, we're kind of looking inside, letting stuff go, digging inside, fear, shame, resentment, self-hatred. The load gets lighter. At some point, we take the backpack off. Sometimes we think um, uh, these states of joy or happiness or well-being are sort of like what happens to us or what gets done to us. You know, we wake up in the morning and it's a good day or a bad day, depending on what side of the bed we got up. Um, and what's liberating about these teachings, as you've been seeing moment by moment, day by day, is a lot of it is up to us. A lot of it is how we relate to what's happening. That we can cultivate. So much of the Buddhist path is about learning to understand, especially in the teaching of right effort, cultivating wholesome states of mind, understanding unskillful, painful states of mind. So our, our path is a gravitational movement towards these qualities of lightness of being, of of joy, of ease, ease, of peace. And the line, one of my favorite lines from the Buddha where he said, whatever we uh, frequently ponder and dwell upon, that the mind becomes, that the heart becomes. Whatever we frequently dwell and ponder upon, that the heart becomes. So we get to look in every moment, where am I inclining my attention? Is it to that which creates more difficulty and stress? Or is it that which creates the, the seeds, the conditions for, for happiness or well-being or peace to flower? When I, was, uh, when I first started practice, I was in the East End of London. It was very gray, it was very run down. England was going through a depression and um, more depressing than it normally is, that is. <laughs> And, um, and I was angry and I was, you know, I was, I was an anarchist and I was just had a lot of rage against the system. And, I, and so, of course, with that lens, all I saw was oppression and injustice and uh, poverty and discrimination and all of that. And, um, and I was making myself completely miserable because that was the lens I was seeing through and that's what I saw. But that, of course, that wasn't all that was there. And I started to say, well, what else is here? You know, and I'm a nature lover, and it was, it, was one of the re- it was hard to be in the East End of London, but there was still beauty to be seen you know, in, the, in the faces of children, in the park playing, in the London plains that survived the Second World uh, Blitz. Uh, and so I just started to see if I turned my attention in, in a certain direction, not, not to ignore the pain and the poverty that was there, but there was also other things that actually were uplifting to the mind and the heart. 
So I want to give a, a little overview, in a way, of, of different kinds of happiness or joy or well-being that we can encounter on the path in life. And uh, the first is just the ordinary kinds of uh, joy that touch us uh, in the simplicity of our day-to-day lives, if we are present enough, having a cup of tea. As we do our practice, placing, you know, as we place our foot on the ground, as we pay attention to the nature here. You know, I know this is such a big part of the retreat, is to come to Spirit Rock and be held by the beauty of this land. And I know for many of you, you talk about how you're touched you know, by the wacky turkeys and the beautiful deer and the, the blooming grasses and the blossoms and the, the sound of the owls hooting at night, you know, the, the young hawk that's playing with us. And it's important to let that touch you, to be open to that, to feel it, to sense it, to let it in. It's a beautiful thing. And it's something about nature takes us out of our, out of our, our small drama, our self-preoccupation. This is from Mary Oliver. It's called Mindful, funnily enough. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the drab. O good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? the untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of the grasses. Says the ordinary joys that can touch us as if we're present. There's the joy that comes out of mindfulness itself, out of this quality of attention, out of this fine attunement to the way things are. The Buddha says, how happy she is, for she sees that wakefulness is life. How happy she is following the path of the awakened. With great perseverance, she meditates seeking freedom and happiness. How happy she is, for she sees that wakefulness is life. So right now, you may just tune into your own experience. What's what's your felt sense experience in the moment. Is there presence? Is there contentment? Is there curiosity? Is there joy? Is there a sweetness? Is there boredom? Is there hatred? Who knows? But when we pay attention, anything's possible. You know, there's so much uh, simple joy comes from the simplicity of our practice. We might, we might be falling in love with our breath, just the smoothness and the gentleness and the subtlety of breath, or the way our footsteps caress the earth, or the way our hand touches the door, you know, just that very simple, the way the, the arc of the hand as we bring a cup of tea to our lips. You know, there's just something very beautiful in the ordinary, in the everyday. 
the sound of the wind, the sound of the rain. At IMS in the old days, they had this heating system that used to just, as you people who here know, used to kind of clank and bang and clatter and <laughs> really loud. And I don't know, but most people I know kind of fell in love with it. <laughs> There's just a kind of a sweetness to the kind of idiosyncratic banging and clattering and So the simple joys are sometimes the ones that most touch us. This is from Anne Sexton. There is joy in all, in the hair I brush each morning, in the towel newly washed that I rub my body with each morning, in the chapel of eggs I cook each morning, in the outcry from the kettle that heats my coffee each morning, in the spoon and the chair that cry, Hello there, Anne, each morning, in the godhead of the table that I set my silver plate and cup each morning. So I'm using the word joy, but you can substitute the word joy for a kind of a sweetness, or a pleasure, or a delight, or an openness, or a way that we're touched. And it comes from the things that, the obvious things that I've talked about, from nature, from beauty, from uh, the grace of presence. But it can also come when we, uh, when things aren't going uh, according to the way we'd like them, but we still meet them with a tenderness and with a, with a grace. This is from Byron Katie, who uh, speaks to this quite well. She says. Just when I think that life is so good that it can't get any better, the phone rings and life gets better. I don't know how many people believe that when the phone rings it gets better, but anyhow, she does. I love that music. As I walk towards the phone, there's a knock at the door. Who could it be? I walk towards the door filled with the given, the fragrance of the vegetables I've been chopping, the sound of the phone. I haven't done anything for it. I trip and fall. The floor is so unfailingly there. I experience its its texture, its security, its lack of complaint. In fact, the opposite, it gives its entire self to me. I feel its coolness as I lie on it. Obviously, it was time for a little nap. (laughs) The floor accepts me unconditionally and holds me without impatience. As I get up, it doesn't say, come back, come back, you're deserting me, you owe me, you ungrateful thing, you... You didn't thank me. No, it's just like me. It does its job. It is what it is. The fist knocks. The phone rings. People cough. The salad waits. The floor lets go of me. Life is good. <laughs> so it can be like that. You know, it doesn't go according to plan. Does it ever go according to plan? I don't know. Rarely. Usually that's a fluke. And if we can meet it, there's a flow, there's a fluidity, there's a grace, there's an ease. Sometimes we hit those difficult places in our, in our lives, in our practice. And I spoke to that some in my last talk. And there's a, there can be a kind of a sweetness 
And even when we're dealing with the most difficult, darkest places, the despair, the hopelessness, the terror, the abandonment, the shame, if we meet it with a kind, caring attention, there's something, there's something taken, it's like the, the, the quality of attention is a balm, is a sue, is, is a, it's sort of, it's a salve to those difficult places. I know in the times that I've been in the darkest places and there's been a kind of a kind attention that often just comes out of, out of the fruit of a lot of practice, not because I'm trying to be a certain way, that, it's, that even in the loneliest grief, it's okay. There's some, there's some okayness because of the way it's being held. Some of you have noticed the... the, the um, Joy arising out of out of the fruits of your practice around concentration. Some of you doing specific concentration practice, jhana practice. Some of you doing vipassana practice, but it's just naturally rising. Some of you doing metta practice, and the concentrations are rising. This is from the Buddha talking about pity and joy. The meditator enters and remains in absorption. And he permeates and pervades and suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of composure. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure. This is not the words of a life-denying ascetic. He enters and remains in absorption. He permeates and pervades and suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of composure. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure. It's one of the lovely side effects of meditation practice. At times when the conditions are right, we experience the fruit of concentration, the joy, the bliss, the rapture, the ecstatic quality. It suffuses the body, soothes, uplifts, radiates, fills the body with light, with clarity, and that concentration, that happiness, that contentment, we can then use to further our practice, our concentration, our clear seeing. And of course, it's very easy to get stuck there because it's so yummy, right? We think, oh, now I'm doing it right. Now the bliss is coming. Now the rapture is coming. I'm finally on the right path, right? And of course, and then the claws go in. And then we spend the next three days trying to get back to that state that was because we had a certain kind of amount of food at lunch and we were sitting, you know, on a different chair and you know, it arises out of conditions. We enjoy it, appreciate it, let it flow, let it go. You can hold on if you like. It's, you know, you can try it. It doesn't work. So another thing that we experience the fruit of here is the joy of the trained mind. You know, we arrive on a retreat, even if we've been sitting for 20, 30 years, uh, just in the course of our daily lives, we see how busy and restless and scattered our minds become. And so as we come to retreat and we settle and deepen, we feel the fruits and the blessings of a trained mind. You know, it's, it's sweet when the, the puppy is not into every single little thing, you know, peeing and sniffing and barking and yapping and who knows what. No, it, it's, you know, over time it becomes easier to stay steady, to stay present, to hold the mind uh, here. 
As the Buddha said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own mind unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much. So I like to think of um, these deep meditation retreats as having freedom from the tyranny of the mind. From the, from the grosser kind of uh, waywardness and scatteredness. Not, not saying that that doesn't happen you know, from time to time or plenty. Um, but we get to taste what it's like when that mind is not so dominant. You know, whatever, whatever kind of mind, it could be the catastrophe mind, it could be the regretting mind, it could be the I'm so hopeless mind, I should be further along mind, I should be more enlightened like these other people around me. This is the untrained mind the checklist of feeling pathetic. See if this you resonate with this. <laughs> Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. I know this doesn't happen here, but examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. <laughs> Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. Very popular meditation pastime. <laughs> Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint especially with people with the last name as you. (laughs) Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. This is the picture of a woman getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. She's saying, thinking, don't patronize me. (laughs) And lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on this is how you will always feel. Yeah, it's terrible, but it's true. (laughs) And out of, the, out of the, the untrained mind comes a, a, a trained mind that's steadier, that's more peaceful at times. There's a little more space between thoughts. There's a little more contentment, more ease, a little more receptivity, openness to steady, to settle, the one-pointedness that can come. These are very delightful places to, to inhabit. This is from the Chinese poet Wu Men. 10,000 flowers in spring the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. This is the best moment of your life. I think someone asked the Dalai Lama once, what was the best moment in his life? And he sort of, mm, 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 you know, thought and mused and this one. <laughs> that was a great answer. <laughs> uh, why not? And then also on retreat, we have the joy of um, practicing together. We have the joy of sangha, the joy of community. Yeah. Sometimes it's not always so joyous, and sometimes not always so harmonious, but mostly uh, we feel, you know, we, 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 we practice on the draft of the wings of others' practice. You know, we come in the hall, just like when we came into the hall after the first month, and there was just this delicious stillness and steadiness in the hall. No matter what was happening in your mind, there was still a delicious steadiness in the hall. And we, you know, it felt, I felt like we dropped into that, and it just allowed us to go very deep very quickly. It's a lovely story from the texts of when uh, the Buddha went to visit 
uh, Anuruddha, who was one of his um, main disciples, who was practicing with two other uh, 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 disciples of the Buddha, and the Buddha was asked them how they're living. Are they living? How are they living? To getting on with each other, and Anuruddha replied, "Surely, venerable sir, we are living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes." And then he goes on to say, Then um, I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable sir, but one in heart. That's a beautiful description. These monks practicing in the woods together. And then we have the joy of the heart, the joy of the Brahma-viharas. Beautiful qualities of, 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 of heart that, that flow uh, the joy of metta, the sweetness of feeling not so separate, not so isolated, but feeling that sense of connection, a sense of warmth, of openness, of boundlessness at times. And the joy of compassion. You know, again, we're touching suffering, but because we bring that greatness of heart, it doesn't pull us down. We're supported by equanimity, so we don't drown in the suffering, but we're able to hold that. <coughs> As the Dalai Lama said, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Because it opens the heart. and we, we, we reach, we connect, we touch, we feel. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a joyous thing. And as I mentioned earlier in the, in the Mudita practice, again, His Holiness, who said, we improve our chances of happiness six billion to one if we practice Mudita. We practice celebrating the joy of others. Good thing to remember. And then there's the joy of wisdom, the joy of liberation, the joy of insight that can arise. Again from the Buddha, when by knowing the impermanence of forms and sounds and smells and flavors and thoughts, one sees it as it actually is with proper wisdom, that such things, both formerly and now, are all impermanent, all unsatisfactory, and subject to change, joy arises. Such joy as this is joy based on renunciation. That's an interesting way of looking at the three characteristics, that they, they can support the arising of joy. And I'll say a little more about that as we go on. They support the, the joy of renunciation, of not holding on. Right? When we see things, when we see there's nothing actually to hold on to, because everything is shifting, everything is changing, everything is conditioned, we, we have that, t- the, the tendency to grasp is softened. Or we see it and we feel the pain of it, we feel the unsatisfactoriness of holding on. I'm going to hold on to this blissful meditation experience. You know, good luck. But when we see it, we see we see the pain of the grasping. It's like hot coals. We let it go. I was on a long retreat in Wales many years ago, and um, I was having a dukkha retreat. It wasn't called build a dukkha retreat, but I was having a dukkha retreat. <laughs> and uh, my roommate was sick, 
And uh, I thought, oh, good. And I didn't think good. I thought, this is a good excuse. There was a, there was a um, what we call a sweet shop about three miles down the road. Uh, and I thought, okay, I'll go get him some cough medicine and I'll load up on chocolate. So I, and it was howling. It was like the storm. He was like howling rain, dark. It was wild as whales can be. And I hiked down three miles, got to the shop and loaded up on all kinds of sweets and chocolate and completely forgot about the... The, the cold medicine got back, <laughs> walked into the room, I was like, oh no, chocolate. <laughs> it's very good for colds. <laughs> and he took it in good humor. He's an artist and he drew this picture of me at the sweet store, you know, and all behind the counter of the woman serving was like cold, lemsip, remedies, flu medicine. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, I'll have another piece of chocolate. <laughs> So the, this, the joy of renunciation leads to a certain kind of contentment. You know, we, we, we see here, we have a very simple life here. How little we need to be happy. You know? Maybe a nice soft cushion, a nice pillow, you know, some food, some company, a little entertainment at night. You know. <laughs> Lily Tomlin once said, If I'd known what it would be like to have it all, I might have been willing to settle for less. If I'd known what it would be like to have it all, I might have been willing to settle for less. It's very wise. It's from Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. As soon as you open this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present, it's already here in relaxation and letting go. And at times we see that. At times we don't, we struggle, and we try, and we effort, and we will. And then we remember, we relax, we breathe. Oh yeah, just this. Nothing, nothing, nothing outside of this. And then we have the joy that arises out of, uh, out of the fruit of mindfulness, out of the fruit of clear seeing, where we, we no longer identify so tightly as Jack was so beautifully pointing to the other night. We don't take it so personally. The stories, the ideas, the concepts, the memories, the feelings, there's a spacious awareness to hold it all. And so the stories that come and go, you know, we walk through the door and maybe the door slams in our face and, and, and there's a, oh, that person never likes me. I knew they you know. We go into a, you know, our meditation is difficult and we go into a failure story. I'm hopeless, I can't do it. And everybody else is getting it and I can't do it. What's wrong with me? You know, with, 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 with practice, there's a little more space. There's a little more uh, knowing, clarity. Oh yeah, this is just the stories that the mind makes up. I remember working with uh, a friend who was sitting here some years ago and he had particularly, he was an actor and a particularly uh, fierce critic, uh, not just a theater critic, but an inner critic. And um, he was walking down the road to the, to the dining room one day and the critic was on him for his bad practice and blah, blah, blah. And he just had the 
moment of clarity, oh, it's just thoughts. It's just a bunch of thoughts. Blah, 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 sky is blue, grass is green, I'm a hopeless meditator. Blah, and he just, he just saw it. You know, once we see through it, yes, it doesn't necessarily uproot, but it never quite has the same capacity to grip because we've lost, in some ways, our, our belief. This is what the Buddha called mana papancha, the, the proliferation of mind based on stories around the self. And we see, you know, we see this r- relentlessly as we practice. The stories, the I-making, the my-making. Yeah? If you look at your thoughts, what are they about? <laughs> they're not necessarily about saving or sentient beings. <laughs> no, they're about me and what's for dinner. Am I going to get enough? <laughs> Why doesn't that person shut up? And what about my plans when I leave the retreat? And da 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 Yeah? We see the stories, you know. And they're, you know, they're not a problem. You know, we need the mind to, to, to help us navigate through life. But we don't need to be so lost and believe the reality of it all. As Mark Twain once wrote, we do not deal much in facts when we are contemplating ourselves. Biographies are but the clothes and buttons of the man. The biography of the man cannot be the biography of the man himself cannot be written. And the Buddha on this theme of Papancha said, He who has given up Papancha has found the bliss of Nibbana, the supreme peace. He who has given up Papancha, this ceaseless, proliferating mind that proliferates based on sense desire, based on things we don't like, based on sense of self, based on our attachment to our views and opinions. When we no longer buy into those, that the I-making and my-making, story-making, there's a peace. Just as you know when you settle back and you see the thoughts coming and go like clouds. There's a joy not to be so caught. This is again from um, Byron Katie. Mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning, and yet it's inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the self. When you're in dreamless sleep at night, is there a world? Not until you wake up and say, I. When the I arises, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. When the I thought arises, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. But if you question it, there's no attachment. It's just a great movie. Get the popcorn, here it comes. So with, you know, with, with, as, a, as a clarity deepens, there's a certain playfulness. Get the popcorn, here it comes. We see the sideshow, we see the movies, we see the stories. And it's like, it's what the mind does. We don't take it so seriously, we don't give ourselves a hard time. It's just, oh yeah, the mind displaying itself. So there's kind of a spaciousness, and ease, whether it's our mind, whether it's our body, whether it's our personality, whether it's anything that's arising in this, in the five skandhas. This is from Scoop West Niska talking about the personality and having a spacious view. He says, One suggestion is to regard your personality as a pet. It follows you around anyway, so give it a name and make friends with it. Keep it on a leash when you need to, and let it run free when you feel that it's appropriate. Train it as well as you can, and then accept its idiosyncrasies. But always remember that that your pet is not you. 
Your pet has its own life and just happens to be in intimate relationship with you, whoever you may be hiding there beneath your personality. (laughs) So another way of um, mm, sensing into the the this wisdom factor, the, the, the freedom or the, the joy that comes from a deeper knowing, deeper understanding is, and the Buddha t- pointed to uh, a certain simplicity that we can know and understand or, or look at our, our world in a certain way. And one of the ways he taught about that was to Bahia. I'm not sure if we've mentioned this, this particular teaching yet where Bahir was a very ardent seeker and wanted to, was a very impatient ardent seeker and wanted to know the pith of the Buddha's teaching. And, and the, the Buddha was on his arms around. He said, no, wait, I'll have my lunch and I'll talk to you. He said, no, 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 I, I, I need it now. I need, I need to know what the essence of your teaching is. And again, he said, no, and they asked the Buddha a third time. And after the third time, the Buddha always had to respond. So the Buddha said, okay, young man, it's like this. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. In the cognizing, there is just the cognizing. When you see that in the seeing, there's just the seen. In the heard, there is just the heard. In the sensing, just the sensing. In the cognized, just the cognized. Then you'll see that there is no here, no there, nor anything in between. This is the end of suffering. And that that, as often the story goes, the man woke up, he saw through. In a way, he's, in a way it's, it's another way of pointing to Papancha. You know, everything, else in our experience, everything else in our perception, aside from the hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, sensing, cognizing, you could say is Papancha, is a proliferation. And the Buddha is saying there's a simplicity in the direct immediacy of experience. In the seeing, there's just the seeing. In the hearing, there's just the hearing. You know, we can hear that as we listen to the, the house finches tweeting in the morning, ones with a little red mohawk, you know. And there's just that piercing sweetness of hearing, hearing, hearing. Nothing else. And there's something profound in that simplicity, in the stillness. T.S. Eliot put it this way, quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. Quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. There's a nature poem that speaks to this and I read it when I'm teaching my nature retreats and it's by Li Po and it points to this uh, through the nature doorway. He says, The birds have vanished into the sky and the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. And recently I came across a... um, uh, another translation, which I thought was quite amusing, since this, this teaching is pointing to anatta, to, to seeing through papancha and selfing. And this translation goes, 
All the, blur, all the birds have flown up and gone. Lonely clouds float leisurely by. We never tire of looking at each other, only the mountain and me. It's a very interesting translation. Beware of translated texts. <laughs> we never tire of looking at each other, the mountain and me. <laughs> I mean, it's, the, it's the direct antithesis of what the poem's speaking to. Anyhow, I thought that was amusing. <laughs> Anyhow. So lastly, the, boy, the, the Buddha talked, um, pointed to the joy of liberation that's possible in this practice, in this teaching. And my introduction to that, my first sort of real living sense of that when I was, when I was with Punjaji, and I, I was feeling he had tremendous joy. Like if there's one quality that characterized his being was joy, and it felt like the joy of liberation. It's just a complete spontaneity and delight in the teaching and in people waking up. And a lot of people had very deep, uh, deep experience there, deep liberating experiences. And he would just laugh and delight and play and sing and, and just delight in the joy of illumination. And his whole being radiated that. And it was contagious. The Buddha calls Nibbana the highest happiness. So the fruit of the practice, the fruit of the teaching, Nibbana is the highest happiness, the sublime, the peaceful. It's the happiness or the peace of knowing the peace unaffected by changing conditions. So in our life, there's innumerable changing conditions. Everything's coming and going. And to know this truth is to know the peace that resides at the center, that knows the peace beyond conditions, knows the happiness beyond happiness and sadness. And it's no further than right here, right now. Look to your own mind, look to your own awareness, look to your own experience. It's not somewhere else. Nibbana isn't a place somewhere other than here, other than that which is looking that which is seeing, that which is sensing, that which is cognizing. It's right here. And the doorway, one of the easiest accessible doorways to that, if it's not immediately obvious, <laughs> is his teaching, what he calls, Sabe Dhamma Nalam Abhinasaya. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatever, not, nothing what's, not, nothing what, sorry, it's easier in Pali. <laughs> nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. The practice of non-clinging is the doorway to this understanding. So let's sit for a moment. 